so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO on unceded Coast Salish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Today is Friday, August the 7th. I am your host, Alison Cole, and I am joined here today by our co-host, Sinead Sanders. Hello. Welcome to the show. Next Wednesday, August the 12th, is World Elephant Day. World Elephant Day is dedicated to the protection and preservation of the world's elephants. Wildlife tourism plays a large part of our economic system that uses and abuses our Earth's non-human animals. And can you imagine how it's doing now that we're living in a global pandemic when people cannot travel nor put their money into the wildlife tourism exploitation economy to keep it going? Right now, there are 2,800 captive elephants living in Thailand in a position where the dollars aren't coming in. So how are the animals being cared for? Not to mention all the other captive animals in the world, such as dolphins in aquatic parks and elephants, giraffes, hippos, and moose kept in zoos. The global organization World Animal Protection, formerly known as WISPA, is working on a campaign to end the global wildlife trade, and they need the support of Canadians and everyone else to make our voices known to the G20 summit that is coming up in November. World Animal Protection believes that now is the time to call for this end, because if not now, then when? Now is the time to put a ban on the global wildlife trade. Campaign Director Melissa Matlow will join us on the show later for an interview to tell us more about this campaign as well as the realities of how animals such as elephants and dolphins are treated once captured to break their spirits down for a lifetime of performance misery. The Greater Vancouver Zoo is another one of the places that keeps wild animals against their will in their facility in Aldergrove, BC. It's a spectacle for parents to take their kids to for entertainment purposes. But if you saw the recent photos that came up of Oakleaf the moose, a recent emaciated former resident of the zoo, you'll begin to no doubt question the realities of what goes on behind the zoo fences, especially during this time of COVID where ticket sales have been low. We are fortunate to have our local animal activist and anti-captivity campaigner David Espister of the group No More Dead Captives with us on the show today. He's been acquiring a lot of information including from inside whistleblowers about why Oakleaf and many other animals at the zoo suffer and end up dying at a fraction of the lifespan they would normally in the wild. Learn why places like zoos are to be boycotted rather than patronized. That interview is coming up in just six minutes so please do stay tuned and you know a lot of people grew up seeing animals in captivity right it seems like a normal thing growing up when you're a kid right yeah I remember going to the zoo at the Vancouver Aquarium and seeing the dolphin shows for sure yeah and I grew up going to the aquarium as well and I loved it so much that in high school I actually started volunteering there and I just thought I love animals so much 
I want to be around them and I want to help them and I want to help educate people about them. So that's why I went to the aquarium and uh, started volunteering my time there. But over time, I came to realize that uh, there was something that wasn't quite adding up because the more I was there, the more I was learning about the animals that I was seeing and through my own research, not just what the aquarium was putting out there. And once you learn enough, once you read enough, and once you spend enough time with these animals, then you realize they are more intelligent than they are given credit for. They are more aware of their surroundings. They're sentient and um, they're essentially treated as objects because, I mean, I would go in for my volunteer shift once a week and then I would go home and go to school and hang out with my friends and do all this stuff during the week. And I would keep coming back and realizing that this dolphin hasn't left this tank, this, this single room that whole week, that whole time. And how can you be teaching respect for animals when you are teaching people that it's okay, that this is something fun to go see rather than the actually traumatic and abusive situation that it is. And not just for the dolphins, but every captive animal in that place. And so it took a long time for my mind to change. Even after I stopped volunteering there, then it just is so ingrained in our culture. So the number one thing that I learned from volunteering at the Vancouver Aquarium is that taking kids to the aquarium or the zoo does nothing to teach them respect for animals. The number one thing it teaches kids is that it's okay to exploit animals, to keep them in boxes and treat them in ways that we would never want to be treated ourselves. Hello, Greater Vancouver Zoo. Alpha speaking. Hi there. I'm calling to see if I could get some confirmation on the status of Jester. I noticed that he's not there anymore. Can I get your name and number and I will get our animal care to give you a call back? Oh, I don't need a call back. I'm just wondering about the animal status. Um, that's why we're taking a name and number and we will give everybody a call back. You can't just tell me if he's passed away. It seems like he's passed away, right? Well, right now we're not making any comments on anything, but I can hmm. get people to uh, give you a call back. Okay. For our first interview today, we have our local activist and anti-Greater Vancouver Zoo campaigner, David Isbister, with us on the show. As a longtime animal advocate and investigator for the animals, and formerly an insider working in the exotic pet trade for seven years, David uses his experience to campaign for the freedoms of animals kept in captivity, such as at the Greater Vancouver Zoo. In 2017, David was largely instrumental in moving forward the law to pass that now effectively bans the captivity of whales and dolphins at the Vancouver Aquarium. In light of the recent death of the poor emaciated moose at the Greater Vancouver Zoo named Oakleaf, David is here today to give us an update on the status of the animal welfare at the zoo, sharing knowledge from whistleblowers that have otherwise kept this information in the dark. We shall revisit the realities of what goes on behind the fences of the tourist attraction of the Greater Vancouver Zoo, especially now in this pandemic time of low ticket sales. Hello, David, and welcome back to the Animal Voices show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. 
Well, thank you for coming on the show today once again to explain and expose to our listeners the realities of the dealings at the Greater Vancouver Zoo, which are normally not shared with the public. Many people might support the zoo and think it's a fun place to go to see wild animals, but we know that it's a miserable experience for those animals who are kept in captivity at this facility and many others like it. The zoo was recently on my radar after I heard the new general manager say on a radio interview in April that despite being closed due to COVID, he was assuring the public that he had enough general funds to keep the animals cared for and didn't need a $3.2 million bailout like the Vancouver Aquarium was asking for. Now, three months later, the zoo makes it in the mainstream media again. They have since reopened. And this is after a Langley citizen posted photos of the very emaciated former zoo resident Oakleaf the moose residing at the zoo. Two days after these photos were posted on Facebook, the response of the zoo staff was to euthanize Oakleaf on July 22nd. Can you speak from your perspective on the reactive response by the zoo in a place where they say they attend to their animals with high standards of care. Yeah, I was horrified, but I wasn't surprised. This is sort of how the zoo has always approached things. And most of the CASA facilities that I've spoken against seem to have this sort of uh, approach to things as well, is, is they'll do things by force or um, under fire and then uh, sort of cover it up and uh, obfuscate the reality. So they say that for some reason, even though it would have taken, you know, at least a few months for this moose to fall ill and they would have predicted it given that they knowingly took on a captive bred moose, which are known to live only one quarter of their lifespan of a wild lifespan that is in captivity, they would have known that this problem at the end of her life would occur and, and could have taken sooner action. But it, it, they're saying that they saw the body condition of the moose and responded and it just happened to be a big coincidence that it happened after that person found out. So we can believe what they want there as a, and all of these other sort of um, roadside views of varying degrees of mediocre accomplishment kind of twist that truth and manipulate the timeline. Right. Well, I want to talk about CASA and more about the history of the Greater Vancouver Zoo. And let's talk about CASA accreditation, as our listeners may not be informed on what it means for a zoo or aquarium in Canada to be accredited. CASA was born the same year I was in 1975. It stands for Canadian Accredited Zoos and Aquariums, which sounds pretty official sounding, but very official sounding. <laughs> but you've posted in the No More Dead Captives Facebook page recently, Cruelty, thy name is Kaza. Can you speak on the reality of what Kaza does and who it is run by and what does it really mean to sure. be called Kaza accredited? Okay, well it means that another zoo executive from another zoo has looked at your facility and agreed that it is a zoo that should remain open, essentially. CASA operates as a self-regulating industry lobby. So think of them as a lobby, except the lobby is allowed to write their own regulations based on the standards of care they currently deliver, and then also say that that accreditation and them being the accreditor gives them the authority to enforce in the jurisdictions they have zoos, which effectively allows them to evade or at least sort of stop up or slow down processes in jurisdictions that may have influence from the FCCA. So it, it seeks to both, A, legitimize their poor practices by self-writing care regulations, self-inspecting each facility, and then self-accrediting it 
so that they can avoid additional outside scrutiny from from folks who may have, although limited powers, some more power to enforce animal cruelty laws and other standards around care. Right. And I was looking at the CASA webpage last night and on their list of their board of directors page, it's actually blank. It doesn't list anyone, but I understand that the GV Zoo manager, Serge Lucier, is actually part of he's, CASA. Yes, he's currently the chair. He's currently oh, the chair of imagine CASA. that. Okay. Well, how, how convenient that is. And uh, actually, Serge also ran a horrible park in uh, in Ontario called the African Safari Park, where mm-hmm. they give elephant rides and uh, they have elephants perform sort of circus style tricks and, and other things uh, and other maneuvers that really can only be attained by training them in the old fashioned way. And the old fashioned way is with a mahood hook and, and other and other implements to create fear and stress, which is against sort of the uh, the five pillars of animal welfare and uh, is interestingly able to still go on because they self accredit. So just that's like one just small example of how incestuous this industry is. They can write their own standards, have the same person sign off on them and accredit other folks and use that to legitimize their practices by saying, well, we're accredited. It does no service to animals and really is just there to protect the profits of these facilities. Well, now as an animal activist, you've been collating important information about the GV Zoo for years now. And I understand that since Oakleaf's death, you've had zoo-affiliated whistleblowers come to you to report further deaths and truths that the zoo has apparently covered in the public eye. Can you tell us about some of these leads that you are investigating, such as additional recent deaths? Yeah, so I, I noticed a couple animals missing and a, another few folks out there noticed other individuals missing. And around the death of Oakleaf, I first got a message from someone that said, ask the zoo about Jester and ask the zoo about Karen. And Jester was the male moose. Apparently he died in the same body condition as Oakleaf barely a month prior. And then also Karen, a, a Nepalese mountain goat, I believe. They were one of the uh, the white mountain goats that were right at the, the front of the former entrance, which they've now moved back on the property so that they can evade protests. But that's another thing. <laughs> Karen is also missing. So apparently those, those animals, you know, notable animals have died. And another person tells me that as many as uh, 20 animals have died just this year alone. Um, wow. That might be harder to find in sort of the, the BC wild section of things or uh, maybe in the, the birds and and reptiles where things aren't as easily accounted for. Well, I know that you, among many other animal activists, have been phoning the zoo to see if they can confirm the status of Jester and Karen. And they all said that they would get someone from the zoo care part of the of the facility to call you back. Has anyone called back yet? No, strangely, no. Um, no, I posted a video of me phoning and yeah showing the very in-depth process they use. The person is clearly instructed not to confirm or deny and just, no matter what you say, answer, can I take your name and number and we'll get our care team to respond to you? Mm-hmm. And they do not. I thought, you know, obviously they know my name and possibly phone number or whatever. So I just thought I'd leave it. Yeah, sure. They, it's, you know, David is Bister. Here's my phone number. Just to see if uh, <laughs> they would enter in dialogue that way or whatever. But um you know, figuring that they wouldn't call me, I had a number of other people phone as well, and none of those people received a call back either. Well, in April, at the beginning of the pandemic, in that radio interview I earlier mentioned, remember I said I heard Serge Lucier say that 
he had enough money in their coffers to keep the animal care of the zoo going. However, what I've heard recently is actually most of the experienced animal care workers at the zoo have been laid off, leaving the zoo to be primarily run by kids. Is that This is a quote that I read in a discussion online. Do you have any credible sources to confirm this claim or can you provide further information about what is actually happening at the zoo these days with regards to qualified staff working there or not? So I have to say there's a few ways that this has been said, but I also I also have to note that the, the sources I have are all so hesitant and so nervous and young them, themselves. So oh. I heard from two sources that, that said, and these are, these are folks uh, that apparently uh, barely know each other or don't know each other well. They said along the lines of that the, when COVID hit, the most experienced keepers were, were laid off. And it was left to sort of skeleton crews like Keeper's assistant. And another worker was quoted on CTV leaving a, a, a voice statement only, um, like just a, just a quote. They wouldn't appear on camera. But they had said that they were an experienced keeper who had worked at other private zoos and that they were shocked at the care standards of the Vancouver Zoo and that they found it very stressful and frustrating to work there because no matter how much they cared for the animals, they just didn't have the resources to do their job that were in a way that was fair to the animals. And that's uh, someone who's kind of in the zoo setting already, who may be cool with zoos, you know, saying that. So I, I wonder what it would look like to an advocate. So there's that. There, the CTV widely reported that, and then two of the folks I'm speaking to reported that as well. And I have to add, actually, it looks like their name turned up in a sort of conglomeration of companies and businesses affected by COVID that are asking for a combined, I don't know, four or five million dollar bailout. I'll try to find oh. that for you. But it looks like they are they are in fact trying to ask for some share of tourism money or some share of money that's coming through the municipalities as well. But that's developing and I'll have to get back to you on the exact yeah, details of that that but. is an interesting development because i specifically remember him saying no no like we we can cover it we've got the money making the vancouver aquarium look really bad because they were asking for so much money so due to complaints of oakleaf's death and other reports of mistreatment of animals the bcspca has now said they will be conducting an investigation of the greater vancouver zoo what are your thoughts on this i know that historically the spca has had very little teeth to sink into their subjects. I know of cases that have ended not in the favor of animals, I had a lot of fanfare, and, and I've been involved with some other campaigns that, that overlap with the SPCA. And, and I think, you know, no one specifically at the SPCA's fault necessarily, but the, the laws aren't strong to protect the absolutely most vulnerable mm -hmm. individuals held for entertainment. And while I hope that that will bring more media or more attention or more perspective to this issue. I don't know that the laws are strong enough to currently take on CASA. You know, um, the SCCA have, have previously pressed a charge against the zoo for denying Hazina a pool right. um, while hippo. she was growing. A hippos, hippos must uh, absolutely have a pool to relieve pressure on their joints or they can suffer a series of body breakdowns. And, and the charge was stayed after they completed the, the, the enclosure. But you know, instead of that enclosure, they still completed a train and a new concession and other things meant to generate money. So I think they've shown their intentions time and time again, but unfortunately, nothing has stuck. So while I hope there's an investigation, I hope that there's something that says they have to announce deaths or tell people what's going on or keep an active log of their inventory. They're under accreditation and control of CASA, and they are able to subvert those 
recommendations. So we all have to band together and maybe aim at a boycott or, or try to find politicians or other people to affect to create tougher laws. But a little bit of an ongoing struggle there, right? Like as we yeah. all know through all of our advocacy. Yeah, I would like the BCSPCA to be more accountable to the public because when I tried to get a hold of them last year because they were apparently investigating the Excelsior Hog Farm after the Meet the Victims event in which many, many activists exposed the horrors that was happening behind the barn doors there. Right. So they, you know, they said, okay, we will do an investigation. And I contacted them and asked to find an update because like nothing had been said like for a month and they didn't even get back to me. So I really wish they would be accountable. The guy from Excelsior, it's, it's similar. I mentioned it not again to diverge from the topic, but y you know, the, the guy from Excelsior, I forget his name right off the top of my head, but was he not the uh, the pork council chair yes, as well? Like, he, you know, the same sort of lobby position yeah. as Taza, you know, overseeing pork producers, making sure they're humane. And of course, the guy making the rules is flouting the rules. And that's what all these animal producers and animal commodif commodifiers and animal exploiters and entertainers and put, you know, all of these different people that hold animals against their will for nothing more than entertainment or food or commodity, all unnecessary. They're all do, doing the same sort of stuff. And so it's weird to me that, you know, some people can see the, the inherent cruelty and in, in slaughter, but will still defend, you know, the aquarium or the zoo's supposed conservation effort. And I, find, I just find it interesting how, how close these all are to each other in their source evil to animals. And yet we look at some of them still as legitimate simply because they put some, you know, letters in front of a logo and say that they're doing a good job. It's just, it's very curious to me. Well, further on that, can you speak on how oppression and all this animal suffering gets all wrapped up in the way we treat animals for our use in the world in general? Yeah, the very first thing that I see us doing is we just remove their agency. We remove their intrinsic value as, as another individual who may have something to offer us other than a fleeting, selfish taste of flesh or a passing moment of glee watching them be manipulated into doing an activity that means nothing to them because we paid their captors money or using the, the product of their spent bodies to, you know, hold together building material, I mean, or using them to test cosmetics or all the ways we do it. It's all, it's all the removal of their agency, the denial of who they are and what they should be because we have decided that we are better than that and that we are entitled to just help ourselves to their body and their flesh. And so in a zoo, they're living. So that seems to be like a really big part of their disconnect. You go there to see live animals, not dead ones, but then they just say, oh, well, animals in a collection die. So they remove their agency even on death. They do it in life. They do it on death. And unfortunately, a lot of people buy into it thinking that, oh, they did the best they can. They're looking after that animal. But you're forgetting the initial step is that we didn't even grant them individuality. We didn't even observe what is so obvious and measurable and clear is that they don't want to die for entertainment. They don't want to die in a, in a zoo so that other, you know, a few spotted frogs can be released in California. They can do that without killing animals. And, and honestly, we use those excuses all throughout society in our past and, and in our ongoing history to subject people, humans and non-humans, to just abject terror. I see that zoos overlap with incarceration and other in other beliefs. Zoos overlap with profit and and greed and 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 you know other things that may not be my subject to fully advocate on. And and I'm not I'm not trying to compare um, any specific 
one group's marginalization with another's, but I do think they have the same source, and that is just the removal and denial of what you are, what you innately know you are, and just deserve to be. Well said. As an animal advocate and ally, what is your wish for a steadfast and doable plan and a call to action for the Greater Vancouver Zoo and its near future? Listen, for for a long time, I said, you know, if they wanted to transition into a sanctuary where they only, they just said, look, we we have zebras, we have a couple of this, we have a couple of that. We're going to find some sanctuary homes for those. We're going to reflect on what we've done in the past. We're going to become a sanctuary for local ecology. We're going to invite people in who know what they're doing for animals with a focus on release, a focus on rescue, a focus on animal-led rehabilitation and rescue. Then, you know, I'm cool. But honestly, fuck that. So much now, so many years of them pretending like them taking in a couple, a few grizzly bear cubs from, you know, the government of Alberta without trying to rehab them somehow makes them rescuers or them taking in someone's snake as they buy another giraffe or, or have another red panda purpose bred in another zoo. They're just, it's just a bunch of bullshit, like just meant to distract you. They're just trying to stay alive with the status quo as long as they can. And we all have to tell them to knock it the fuck off. And that's where I stand on that. I want them to shut down if they're not going to stop killing animals needlessly. And the way they would shut down is we wouldn't just close it immediately like they, that they say. We, everyone would work together. And like they've always needed for things to happen, it's by force or opportunity. We would all work by force and opportunity to find all of these animals a better suited sanctuary, accredited sanctuary, accredited by the International Sanctuary Association, where re- rehabilitation and release is the first focus, and if not, forever home that, that allows the most natural behaviors. And then we would dismantle that garbage place, and we would use it as a lesson about what not to do in the future. And we would talk about all of the animal deaths there that were needless and based on nothing other than just ego and greed and money. And that's what we do with the zoo. Yeah, we've got to get the message out there. So for our listeners who are now getting educated on this topic, what can they do to help the animals at the GV Zoo? First and foremost, there's some easy stuff. Be vocal about your boycott. Research what I'm saying, you know, challenge my truth. If you don't, if you don't believe what I'm saying, I mean, I, you can find, you can find all this. Check us out at uh, No More Dead Captives on Facebook. There's some more resources coming and just educate yourself about what zoos mean in general. See see if you can find science that backs up what they say. Research their history. Even just type GV Zoo Cruelty in Google and, and uh, GV Zoo Conservation and decide if it's worth it. People should do their own research, but, but when you decide to boycott, be vocal with it. Tell people yeah. why. Tell people as often as is comfortable for you. Every single one of those animals, whether you love a mountain goat or a deer or a, whatever animal resonates with you there or all of them or any, a fish, a bird, speak for them, become their voice. We can hear their voice. We can see that the only way they achieve liberation is by dying their, their way out of that zoo, you know, mostly halfway through a normal lifespan. Be that voice. It's opportunistic, but it unfortunately needs to happen in that pattern. When animals die there, when you notice something, we have to say something and we have to keep that present in the, the narrative so that the repetition of a GV zoo cruelty and decide to finally take personal action. And you can join our protest. They can phone the SPCA. They can document it with pictures by going in. If they have to go in once to to satisfy curiosity, bring your camera and document the line worn into the ground by the uh, the tigers pacing back and forth at the fence line. Document the stereotypic behaviors of monkeys pacing and shaking. All sorts of different things that can be documented if you look deeper 
and understand with a more critical eye what zoos need to do to survive, and that is keep bodies moving through the door and keep membership selling and keep people thinking that what they do is good and only good. But in fact, it's a tiny, tiny bit of good and a whole lot of really, really nefarious, strange exploitation. Yeah. Thank you very much, David Isbister, Vancouver animal activist and founder of the group No More Dead Captives, for telling us your insights and facts about what really goes on behind the fences of the Greater Vancouver Zoo and how they treat their animals who would otherwise be known as wildlife living in the wild. To keep connected with the No More Dead Captives campaign and events to come. Follow them on their Facebook. Once again, that's No More Dead Captives on Facebook. And if you are affiliated with the Greater Vancouver Zoo and have information to share as others have, you can contact David at that Facebook page, No More Dead Captives, to help and to put an end to keeping wild animals in captive facilities. May I say something on that? Yes, for sure. We're taking pledges for folks. So there's a little bit of a pot forming where if we have a proper whistleblower who's willing to help find distinctly, directly verifiable information, that we have a, a bit of a reward up um, and that's that's building. So we expect it to land in the neighborhood of $1,000 to start. But, you know, you don't have to do anything illegal to get that information. We're not suggesting anyone do anything that, you know, possibly violates them themselves. But we know that there's information out there from good sources and we're happy to reward you for helping animals. Well, thank you once again, David, for all your hard work and for speaking out and acting for the animals, as you always do. Be healthy and stay safe. Thanks, David. Thank you so much, Allison. Awesome to talk to you as always. And thanks for all you do as well. And now for some events. This Saturday, August the 8th, we'll have the Effective Aquatic Animal Advocacy Meetup. So this is a collaboration between the Effective Animal Advocacy Meetup and the Aquatic Life Institute. And it's the first of a new monthly online meetup focusing on effective advocacy for specifically water-dwelling animals. And you might wonder, why would they need a specific kind of advocacy? But for those of us who've been working on it, then uh, you can uh, then you can learn for yourself how difficult it is to get people to empathize with aquatic animals compared to uh, our fellow land-dwelling animals. So this mm-hmm. is very interesting. The event will feature Dr. Lynn Snedden, a scientist who is a leader in the field of aquatic animal biology and fish welfare. She's been studying aquatic animals for more than 20 years. Her contribution to the field of fish welfare and society's understanding of fish pain, behavior, and welfare is immense. And she currently sits as the director of bio-veterinary science at the University of Liverpool. So I personally am looking forward to hearing what she has to say this Saturday. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna check it out as well, Allison. Oh yeah, yeah. Just always to you know add to my knowledge of animals, especially those in the ocean who we don't know that much about. Mm-hmm. So the event will start with a presentation from Dr. Snedden before splitting into breakout rooms to discuss specific questions, and then there will be a final discussion. So this will be super interesting. That uh, this Saturday, August the eighth from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And it is online, so you can find the link on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver. And it's going to be a Zoom meeting, so it's open to everyone in the world. 
Absolutely. Anybody, uh, you know, and you don't have to be an animal advocate or anything in particular to check it out. You know, anybody can learn something about fishes from this. And that ultimately affects all of us. So there you go. If anyone has any animal-related events that you'd like to have us announce on the show, you can send us an email at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. And post it on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver. The Greater Vancouver Food Bank has been providing support for our cities for almost 40 years and has been vital to helping thousands of community members through the COVID-19 crisis. To find out how you might benefit from the Greater Vancouver Food Bank's services, or to learn how you might donate money or volunteer your time, please visit their website at foodbank.bc.ca. You are listening to the Animal Voices radio show here on 100.5 FM CFRO, broadcasting from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. For our first interview today to honor World Elephant Day, which takes place on August 12th every year, we have Melissa Matlow on the show. She is the campaign director of the nonprofit organization World Animal Protection, formerly known as WISPA. World Animal Protection's mission is to end the needless suffering of animals by influencing decision makers to put animals on the global agenda and by inspiring people to change animals' lives for the better. In addition to discussing elephants used globally in entertainment, Melissa will also tell us about World Animal Protection's campaign to call on Canada and other G20 countries to commit to a ban on the global wildlife trade. Hello, Melissa, and welcome to the Animal Voices Show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the show today to tell us about the work of World Animal Protection at this time where the dialogue is starting to open around the global wildlife trade and how humans treat wild animals purely to profit from their bodies and their usage in tourism entertainment. These industries have more of a lens cast upon them now due to the global pandemic that we are going through. We did a show focusing on zoonotic diseases three months ago. Our listeners can find that podcast on animalvoices.org. Can you tell us why now more than ever we can no longer ignore the dangers of exploiting wild animals? Why is now the tipping point? Well, it's widely acknowledged that a wildlife market in Wuhan, China, played a significant role in the COVID-19 outbreak. And while scientists are still researching the evolution of the virus, we can no longer afford to ignore that this pandemic and previous epidemics around the world are fundamentally linked to the cruel treatment and exploitation of animals and encroachment on their habitat. SARS, MERS, Ebola, HIV, these are some of the epidemics that could be traced back to our treatment of animals. In fact, 75% of new or emerging infectious diseases affecting human health come from animals and mainly from wildlife. So this is the right time to be speaking up about this issue. And I think most Canadians would agree they don't want a crisis like this happening again. Yes, and you actually commissioned a survey in which the results recently came out to understand the perspective that Canadian citizens have on the wildlife trade. Can you tell us a bit about what were the results of the survey? Yeah, absolutely. We uh, commissioned North Star Research to do a survey just this month. 
and they found the vast majority of Canadians are concerned about the impact of the global wildlife trade, and they support the, uh, the government of Canada taking action to both ban wild animal markets and the commercial trade in wild animals. So we found that 75% of Canadians want the Canadian government to support a permanent ban on wild animal markets, and 70% want the Canadian government to support a global ban on the commercial trade in wild animals. 70% would also support stronger laws to reduce the trade in wild animals in Canada. We asked Canadians what their reasons were, and it was interesting because 93% believe the wildlife trade causes animals to suffer and is cruel. Just slightly lower believe the trade threatens human health and can cause pandemics, uh, 89%, or threatens biodiversity and can cause species extinction. So the highest level of awareness is about the animal cruelty aspect of this issue. And certainly that's our organization's main mission. But we know that if animal cruelty and the the need to protect species from going extinct isn't sufficient reason to compel our government to act, surely the, preventing the next pandemic is. That's actually incredible news for me to hear because I would have said that six months ago that you know, above 90% of Canadians wouldn't have realized that these issues are, they're a result of the way that we keep animals in the wildlife trade and abuse them. And basically, you know, I feel that that is, that is a win. And as you're saying, now is the time, it's the tipping point. It's because this has happened to us globally. Now, I'm wondering if you can speak specifically on some certain aspects of the wildlife trade that our listeners should know about and be frightfully concerned about when it comes to not just looking out for our own safety as humans, but looking out for the well-being of wild animals and their right to live their lives in freedom. Sure. Well, wild animals are bred in captivity and captured from the wild for a variety of purposes around the world. Here in Canada, they're, they're bred on farms for consumption, for meat, uh, for fur. Mink and fox are, are farmed for their fur. Um, and then there's a thriving exotic pet industry in Canada, and wild animals are still bred in captivity for entertainment purposes. So we looked at trade data to try to figure out, you know, how big is this problem in Canada? Because when we're taking this message to government, that's one of the first questions they're going to ask us. But unfortunately, the only data we can access is data from the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species. So these are species that are listed at being at risk of endangerment due to the commercial trade. So not all species, but even that data showed us that 547,000 live wild animals were imported into Canada between 2014 and 2019. And that's just a fraction of the wild animals that are imported into our country as permits aren't required for the vast majority of species that aren't listed under this Important convention. You know, the fact that this is about endangered species or species that are at risk of endangerment is of particular concern. So we had to do a survey to find out the volume of this trade. And that survey showed us that 1.4 million wild animals are kept in households as pets. That includes about 27,000 Burmese pythons and even more than 2,000 tigers. So it's a major problem. We think it's one of the biggest problems that the, the Canadian government needs to act on if we are to take our role in the wildlife trade seriously. But there's also the issue of wild animals being poached from the wild for the trade. So Canadian bears are in particular are hunted and traded internationally to meet the demand for bear bile products. And we even found traditional medicine products in the greater Toronto area that were illegally selling bear bile products. So we are connected to this trade 
And, you know, it's one thing for us to call upon China to close wildlife markets, and I think we should, but we need to look in our own backyards as well. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for pointing that out, that it's happening right here in Canada. For those of our listeners who don't know about the bear bile trade, I do believe we have featured a show on it. Check it out at animalvoices.org and just type in bear bile. It's really quite horrific. The 15th G20 Summit will be held this November by hosting nation Saudi Arabia. For those of our listeners who don't know, can you tell us what the purpose is of the summit, who it is made up of, and how World Animal Protection intends to take part this year in calling upon Canada and the other participating nations to put a stop now to the global wildlife trade? Sure. The the G20 is a global forum of 19 countries and the EU. So it's made up of the world's 20 largest economies. So Canada is part of the G20. So is the United States, the UK, India, Brazil, China. And these are also where we have offices. So we have been working with our offices around the world to encourage G20 countries to make a commitment to curb the wildlife trade at the Leader Summit in November. We're also members of the Civil Society 20. So this is a network of other NGOs that have a role and a formal role of engaging the G20 on the issues that matter to them. So we're very pleased to be working in alliance with a number of other groups who have also supported our call for restrictions on the wildlife trade. But in terms of the remit of the G20, I mean, historically, they've been focused on the economy and and how to achieve international financial stability. But recently, since the adoption of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Climate Agreement, the remit has widen and it includes other global issues like healthcare. So we feel they're the right forum for this. Certainly they have the power and influence to move the world into action. And this is a global problem. There's no country that is not responsible here. And and it requires influential nations like the largest economies to find a solution to this issue. It does seem like a huge task to take on is to and it's a big ask that you're asking for it. And I'm glad you're doing it because someone has to, right? It's, it's, it's time. It's like no change ever happens unless activists start to put that change forth and basically plant a seed for that idea. But I'm wondering, is this too big of a change to make all at once? Or do you believe that our leading nations have the capacity to act largely and quickly now as they have been for other aspects relating to the pandemic in a sense of urgency? It's an ambitious goal for sure, but if not now, when? If this pandemic is not sufficient proof to compel governments around the world to act, I don't know what is. I mean, we would like to see the wildlife trade ban to prevent animal cruelty and protect biodiversity, but we do think this current crisis and what it has done to people's lives and livelihoods, to the economy, to to public health around the world. There's not one country that doesn't know the ramifications of this virus. So this is the right time to bring this issue. But it is definitely a, a difficult ask in terms of government capacity to act. Well, I mean, a lot of countries would be more supportive of enacting regulations. So restricting the wildlife trade through better regulations and enforcement. And I think that's a capacity question. So do we have as a country enough inspection resources to be able to enforce regulations? I would think not. And I would think that a ban is certainly a more cost effective 
approach and that the risks are just too high and that we don't want to afford the high cost of, of what is entailed to ensure that people are safe from the wildlife trade. Well, there's a lot to take in there and it, there's definitely dialogue there for further conversation that we can have one day in the future. Thank you for taking part in this summit that's coming up in November and getting the ball rolling here. Now, World Elephant Day is coming up next week on August the 12th. This is a time to support the protection of elephants, wildlife and their habitat. World Animal Protection has done a lot of work on the ground to investigate elephants used in tourism and you actually recently released an undercover video that exposes the hidden reality of the physical and psychological trauma of elephant training for tourism entertainment. This entertainment largely takes place in Thailand, where right now, I understand there are about 2,800 captive elephants in training camps around the country. I watched the eight minutes of unreleased footage that you have on YouTube that shows what is known as the crush process in separating a baby from his or her mother and then submitting them to years of training so that they learn how to do things like perform tricks and give tourists rides on their backs. This video footage was very distressing to me and would be to any person with a heart. So please do let our listeners know about the process that these thousands of captured elephants are put through, effectively tearing them from their families and any freedoms that they would have to live their lives as a wild animal. Yeah, I'm very sorry about that video footage. It is very, it's, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, we do put a lot of thought on whether we should put this kind of footage out. It is disturbing, but when governments and companies aren't convinced to do the right thing, sometimes, you know, it, it has to be done. One of the, you know, criticisms we had of our campaign is that the evidence of the crush was so old. The last video footage was taken about 10 years ago. So we felt it was very important to show that it is still happening. But the truth of the matter is that every baby elephant, whether they're captured from the wild or bred in captivity, if they're used for rides, then they have to go through this harsh training process. They're separated from their mothers at an early age. They're subjected to harsh training. They're deprived of food. They're kept in isolation and they're they're beaten to break their spirits. It can last a few days, but the psychological trauma can stay with the elephants forever. And as you know, elephants don't forget. Elephants in the wild wouldn't naturally approach people, so and they're potentially dangerous. They they can and, and have killed people. So in order to make them submit to uh, having a, a person on their back or their neck, this is what the industry has to do to, to make them fear people and obey commands. So I think what's important to stress here is it's the tourist demand to get up close to these elephants that's driving this process and, and fueling the poaching of elephants from the wild. So that's why our main objective is to encourage travel companies and tourists to stop uh, fueling that demand. We want the companies to stop selling elephant rides and we want people to stop buying them and asking for them. And while less people are traveling right now during the pandemic, this is a great opportunity for the travel industry to, to think about how they build back better. And we hope they'll leave cruelty out of their future vacation packages. I understand that the elephant tourism industry in Thailand has basically halted because of the pandemic. Can you tell us about what the status is currently of these elephants that are kept in camps or being at the tourism facilities right now? What has happened to them? Sure. Yeah, unfortunately for elephants that are used for, for rides and shows and many other captive wild animals that are used for tourism, they're they're at the whims of this fluctuating tourist industry in order to survive. So 
the venues do need tourist dollars to to feed them and take care for them and that's not the right situation to be in but even good venues that are doing the best they can and can't release the animals in the wild and are upholding the highest standards are struggling to care for their elephants so we put out an emergency fundraising appeal and thanks to our generous supporters we were able to raise sufficient funds to help feed and care for the elephants at these high welfare venues and that allowed us to provide food and supplements and veterinary care and and help with the running costs of the venue that support will we have enough to carry us through we hope until november and by that point we do hope that you know the good venues will be able to to open and and be self-sufficient again these are places that have elephants that have been used in tourism that are now following our best practices those elephants can't be released so they're as close as possible to a sanctuary model but they do need that revenue in order to survive and we feel like that is the best transitional solution until we end the captivity of elephants in this trade altogether. So one of the requirements is that they can't breed these animals, they can't trade them, they have to meet our standards, and we will then help and support them. Well, when travel eventually does reopen, who knows when that will be, but for people who want to support places of actual sanctuary and refuge for rescued elephants because true sanctuaries do exist. How can you tell which facility is legitimately helping the animals versus those who say they are, but they're actually stealing them and running a for-profit and animal abusive business under the guise of sanctuary? And I understand there's, well, there's lots of these places in Southeast Asia. And even just knowing that there's 2,800 elephants in Thailand, that's, that's enormous for such a small country too. It is. And unfortunately, there are no rules on the use of the word sanctuary. So there and there are a lot of places that use that word, but are nothing more than a roadside zoo. So our simple rule of thumb is if you can ride, hug or take a selfie with a wild animal, chances are it's cruel. A true sanctuary wouldn't breathe their animals or let you get close to the animals for a photo opportunity. They would put the welfare of the animals first over top of the person's desire to get close to them. So ideally look for places that are independently accredited. So there's the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries that accredit sanctuaries so they can do the research for you. But I mean, there are a lot of places that can afford that accreditation process and still have their intentions in the right place and are are doing a good job. Stay away from any place that allows you to get up close to a wild animal. It might look innocent to cuddle a sloth or bathe an elephant, but wild animals don't want to be close to people. And there's typically cruel training involved and more that happens behind the scenes. So that's that's usually a red flag for us. And that's why we've worked with the travel industry to transition elephant riding venues to meet our best practices. So at the venues that have worked with us, you can only see an animal like an elephant being an elephant, not doing anything that humans want them to do, uh, but just behaving naturally from a respectful distance. You can't get up close. You know, the elephants uh, get to do what they want to do and, and we're respectful guests in, in their enclosure. Thank you for that. Also, with regards to sharing and extending knowledge on the issues of captive animals used in tourism, Japan Dolphins Day is coming up soon. Every September 1st marks this day of international awareness and also the opening of the annual dolphin slaughter season in Taiji, Japan, which goes until March the 1st. This period is when dolphin hunters will kill up to 20,000 dolphins and capture hundreds more to be sold to businesses around the world that then charge tourists to interact and swim with these imprisoned creatures. To speak for the thousands of dolphins entrapped in tiny pools right now across the world, what would you like to tell our listeners? 
Oh, it's so horrible what happens to these dolphins in Japan. And our campaign is called Fool by a Smile because our biggest barrier is just educating the broader public that dolphins suffer enormously in captivity, whether they're bred in captivity or captured from the wild. And, you know, it's unfortunate for the dolphin that they look like they're smiling and people really believe that if they're in water and playing with a ball, they're okay. They don't they don't see the cruelty. It's not like the elephant where you can see elephants chained up. You might see a bull hook. There's really not that physical evidence of what happens to dolphins, but they suffer enormously when they're kept in tiny barren tanks where they're not able to behave naturally. And they they travel vast distances. They die very deep. They like to be in their pods. They're very social, complex creatures. And you know, even the biggest aquarium or dolphinarium is not big enough to meet their physical and behavioral needs. So we've been working to try to raise awareness about the dolphin tourism industry. We're trying to get travel companies to remove it from their supply chain. Canada is really important to this issue because dolphin tourism is very popular in the hot spots that Canadians vacation at. Mexico, Caribbean, Florida, that's probably the wild animal that suffers the most for tourism if you're looking at numbers and the severity of their suffering. So we really need help to get attention to this issue. And while Canadian travel companies are laying off people and temporarily closed, this is a good time to appeal to them, especially if you have connections in the industry, to really encourage them to think about building back better and removing this from their supply chain. Well, finally, what can our listeners and Canadians do to help end the exploitation of wild animals at this critical time in history? And I understand you have a petition as well to call upon Canada and the G20 countries to end the wildlife trade globally. Yes, we need all the help we can get. As you had mentioned, it is a very ambitious goal, but we're going to do it. But we need Canadians and your listeners to help us. So, so far, our petition has garnered the support of 29,000 Canadians. We need much more to get the Canadian government to take this to the G20. People can sign our petition at worldanimalprotection.ca. And in the coming week or so, we will have a letter writing action that you can use to send a letter to your member of parliament as well. The more members of parliament hear about this issue, the more likely they'll take a briefing with us and we can encourage them to share their support with the prime minister and the key ministers that are responsible for this issue. But we do need people to help. When you do think of traveling again, uh, please look to book with a travel company that has an animal welfare policy that doesn't sell attractions that exploit wildlife for entertainment. Thank you very much, Melissa Matlow, the Campaign Director of World Animal Protection, for coming on the show for World Elephant Day and to educate us on the various issues of the global wildlife trade and why it needs to end now. So once again, you can find the petition to call upon Canada and the G20 Summit Nations to put an end to the global wildlife trade. You can find it in several places on our website, animalvoices.org. It's posted on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver. And of course, you can also find it at worldanimalprotection.ca. And you can also find out more there about the organization and how they have been serving to protect animals for 50 years. Thank you once again, Melissa, and stay healthy and be safe. Oh, you too. Thank you so much, Allison. Really appreciate you putting a spotlight on this issue. It's not getting the attention it deserves and and you're helping us uh, reach other people with this message. So thank you. You've been listening to the Animal Voices radio show on 100.5 FM Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. 
Please join us for next week's show on Friday, August the 14th, which Leah and Grace will be producing. We here at the Animal Voices Show modestly ask you to keep connected with Animal Voices via the World Wide Web. Our past shows can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org. Our past podcasts are also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Join our Facebook page and join us on Instagram, both at Animal Voices Vancouver. To close the show, today we are playing an instrumental piece aptly called Beautiful Wildlife Soundtrack by Kazia. Stay tuned next for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you so much for listening to Animal Voices today. Be safe and remember to be kind to the animals. Thank you.